0: may be seated. The kingdom of heaven, I am convinced, is going to be a shocking place. First of all, it's going to be shocking because as Matthew chapter 7 tells us, there are a lot of people that are going to expect to get in that are not going to get in. So it's going to shock us as to who is not there. Jesus said that there are men that will come and say, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not cast out demons in your name? Did I not perform many miracles in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. That not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. There are many of you, I'm afraid, that one day will stand before the judgment seat of Christ exposed and naked in your full life, in your full sin, and Jesus will look at you, and he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And it will be stunning, shocking. You thought you were in the club, you thought you had done the right stuff, you thought you had been there, and you, in fact, didn't know Jesus at all. But not only will it be shocking to us as to who is not there, I believe it will be shocking to many of us as to who is there. We have this picture, I think, when we think of heaven, we think of white, middle-class heaven. Brothers and sisters, let me just tell you, there's going to be a lot of people there. There's going to be people from every tribe and every nation and every tongue there. They're going to be gathered around the table there. You're going to be seated with them. You're going to be coming into this melting pot. And there, Jesus is going to be exalted, not just in your words, but just in the appearance of everything that is seen. There's going to be drug addicts there. There's going to be people off of death row there. There's going to be people from juvenile there. There's going to be former prostitutes there. Delivered homosexuals there. There's going to be grandmothers there. And dads there. And Africans there. And Russians there. And Americans there. And Jews there. And what a stunning sight it will be of the grace of God. What stunning sight. And so this morning as we go back into Matthew, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8. If you want to go ahead and turn with me there. But as we go into Matthew, what we're going to see this morning is how Jesus reaches out his hand to sinners. One of the things that you'll find out about Jesus as you read the Gospels is he's essentially never with the people he's supposed to be with. Jesus is always hanging around the wrong kind of people at the wrong time of day, at the wrong situations. He's always in a bind, apparently. To me, it's one of the most glorious things in all of the Gospels that Jesus is always with people he should never be with. And this morning, we're going to see three different people that Jesus should have never been with. Stand with me. As we read the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 8. Beginning in verse 1, God's word says, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt down before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. That was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. So coming out of Matthew chapter 7, if you'll remember where we were, we, we were in the Sermon on the Mount. We spent 21 weeks going Matthew 5, 6, and 7 through the Sermon on the Mount, and this is the time what Matthew is wanting to follow that up with in his gospel. And so to follow up the miraculous, divine teachings that Jesus had spoken on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew then so wants to prove to us that Jesus actually had the authority to say the things that he said. Remember, Jesus said some very authoritative things. Jesus interpreted much of the Old Testament. Jesus even said, I have come to fulfill the law, right? And so as we get into Matthew chapter 8, what Matthew is showing us is that Jesus has the authority to say the things that he said. That the man who spoke in 5, 6, and 7 could say them because he wasn't just a man. He, in fact, was God so we are first introduced in verse 1 of chapter 8 to a leper, a man who comes and he says, Jesus, I know that you can heal me. Will you do it? Jesus, I know that you are capable. I know that you have the ability. I know that you can. That's not the question. But will you? Will you heal me? Will you set me free? Will you deliver me from my leprosy? See, this man comes to Jesus with the right faith and the right attitude and the right question. It's something that we very often misunderstand about God. We believe that God must necessarily do that which he is able to do, but the scriptures say that God only does that which is in accordance with his will. That we can't pray in such a way that puts God in our debt to respond to him, to respond to us the way that we desire for him to do. Regardless of what the books say, and regardless of what everybody else says, God operates according to his divine will. And so what we see here is a distinction that the leper has made, that we should make. The leper was able to distinguish between the the distinction between Jesus' sovereign power and Jesus' sovereign will. What the leper understood is that in his power, he could do it. He could deliver this man from leprosy. He could heal this man of leprosy, get rid of all of it. But we know that Jesus and God do not heal, or God does not heal everyone who is, he is capable of healing. Paul says, I've prayed three times that the Lord would remove this thorn from my flesh, and yet he does not do it because he says to me, my grace is sufficient for you. That, in other words, it served his will better for Paul to keep the thorn than to be rid of it. It showed God as being mighty, and God as being great, and God as being powerful to work through such a weak vessel. It's the same for this leper. He comes and he says, I understand, Jesus, that your sovereign power serves to accomplish your sovereign will. This is how we should pray, church. This is how Jesus tells us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. That we come and say, if it's your will, let it be done. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, Not my will, but your will be done in me. And so we go to to Jesus with the same attitude. We go to the Father through Jesus in the same attitude saying, God, I know that you are able. My prayer is is that you are willing. Now, it is no uh, mystery as to why this man comes to Jesus. There's no mystery as to why this man comes to Jesus wanting to be healed of leprosy. Leprosy was a horrible disease, particularly in Jesus' day. See, first of all, when you dealt with leprosy, you had to deal with the physical illness of it. Leprosy is a, an attack on your nervous system. It, it can actually begin to take over your nervous system to the point where you don't feel pain anymore, and, and pain, by the way, is a gift to the body that you might not do damage that is uh, irreparable, and so you you can't feel feel uh, feel pain, and then your your immune system becomes compromised, and infection begins to set in as as you become to begin to look like you have scales from the top of your head to the bottoms of your feet, and as you're. Immune system is compromised, infection sets in most uh, very easily. And very often, someone with leprosy would get to the point where they would eventually, their uh, limbs would become deformed and their fingers would become deformed. Very often, they would even fall off of their bodies. It was considered to be a rotting disease. where You literally rotted from the outside in. To get a diagnosis of leprosy in Jesus' day was to get a death certificate almost. That unless God divinely, miraculously healed you, you had no hope. But it wasn't just a physical ailment. It also came with distinct social stigmas. To be a leper leper in Jesus' day was to be an outcast in society. It was to be pushed out into the cities according to Leviticus 13 and 14. That to be a leper was to be so, first of all, you're you're dealing with how hideously ugly you are, covered in this leprous disease. Second of all, it was contagious from one person to the next. And then the scriptures say that it makes a person unclean, unfit for worship, unfit for social life in ethnic Israel. So if you were a, a leper and someone were approaching you, Or you were a leper and approaching a crowd or someone else. You were to cry out, unclean, unclean, so that people would know that they can't touch you. So that people would know that you should be left alone. You see, for a person to touch, a leper was to make themselves unclean. It was to make themselves socially unfit. It was to make themselves unfit from worship and unable to worship. And so a leper would not be able to kiss his wife. He would not be able to hold his children. He would not be able to shake the hand of his friend. No, he would be destined to spend his life in leper colonies and on the outskirts of town and in the wilderness. And then you had the spiritual reality. You see, to be a leper in Jesus' time was to believe that you had been condemned by God. It was to believe that you in some sense had a sin in your life or you had a sin in your family that so calls God to show judgment and condemnation to you. So it's physical, it's social, and it's spiritual. But notice, what is the very first thing that Jesus does? What is the very first thing that Jesus does? Look at verse 3. This is remarkable. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and touched him jesus reached down his hand to this leper and he touched him this man that has to say unclean unclean this man that had not kissed his wife this man that had not hugged his kids this man had not shaken the hand of a friend This man that could not even sleep in his own bed or live in his own home. This man that could not go to his church, could not be around people. Nobody would touch him. Nobody would talk to him. Nobody would be around him. Who knows how long it had been since he had even felt the touch of another human being. And yet the very first thing that Jesus does is touch him. Is touch him. Jesus is trampling social barriers here. Jesus is steamrolling social stigma here. Jesus is saying to this leper, leper, he is saying, I will be identified with you. He is saying to the unclean, I am willing to be identified with the unclean. Church, this is no small thing. This is no small thing. That Jesus reaches his hand and touches the leper. It was the loudest words that Jesus could have spoken to this man. As Jesus reaches down and touches him, he is saying, I love you. I will never run off on you. Your disease does not scare me away. Your uncleanliness does not scare me away. There is nothing that you've got that is so bad that I will refuse to be in your life. There is nothing that you've got that is so bad that I will back away and refuse to get involved. There is nothing that you've got that exceeds my love for you. Stunning picture. But it's one that we see over and over and over as we go through the Gospels, as we watch Jesus' life, is that Jesus is not afraid. In fact, Jesus is always willing to be identified with the unclean. Now, church, who are we? Who are we? We are those that bear his name, we are his church. We are those who were unclean until he made us well. We are those who were lepers until he healed us. We are those that were dead in our sin until he raised us from the dead. And now, we are those who extend his hand to the unclean. Just as Jesus in the Gospels is always extending his hand to the unclean, we are the extension of the hand of Jesus to the unclean and to the outcast of our society. And how far should we reach? We should reach as far as the grace of Jesus will go. And guess where it will go? It will go to all of the nations, to the ends of the earth, as Acts 1-8 says. That we as his church should be willing, must be ready, in fact are compelled to go and to reach out Jesus' hand to every leper in our society, to every leper in our community, in fact to every leper of every nation to the ends of the earth. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look at the church, I don't see that represented very well. When I even think about my own heart and I even think about my own life, I tend to bring in all of the social baggage, I tend to bring in all of the stigmas from the world, I tend to bring in and measure people in the church the same way the world measures them out there. We tend to see them through our our eyes as they have been conditioned to be from birth. This has infected the church. The church no longer reaches its hand out to the leper as Jesus did. Instead, we want to reach out our hand to people that are just like us. Think about who it is that you're more likely to welcome when they visit here. Think about who it is the people that you're most comfortable approaching. Think about the people that you're most likely to invite to dinner after church. I bet you it's people that look just like you people that you're comfortable with, people that are a similar age to you, people that that dress similarly to you, people that have kids about the same age. You see, this is the church growth movement of the 20th century. Did you know that? We have brought business, we have brought the world into the church, and now we have to have a, a business strategy so that we can build our Christian empire so that everybody will look at how incredible our church campus is and say, hey, they must be blessed by God. If you read enough church growth books, here's what all of them will say, essentially, is that you best reach people that are most like you. You best reach people that you are most like you. I think uh, Rick Warren was the one that really made this famous in his book, Purpose Driven Church. And so what you need to do is you need to go into your church and you need to do a demographic study. And you need to figure out the demographic of your church. And then you found your target audience. See, it's about the bottom line, isn't it? It's about growing our business. It's about increasing our offerings. It's about increasing our attendance. It's not about the glory of God. So you go and you do a demographic study and you find people that sound like you, look like you, talk like you, make money like you, dress like you. And then you go reach those people. You build your whole church so that it fits them, so that it's comfortable for them, so that it's enticing to them. And what you have in that person is called the prime prospect. You ever heard that before? Let me just just exhort you. Never come up to me and tell me that there's a prime prospect. All right? Ever. Because I'm going to rebuke you on the spot. And I'm giving you fair warning. Don't come up to me and say, hey, Cody, we've got a prime prospect here. See, if we were to do a demographic study of Iron City, it would probably be white, middle class, young families whose kids play little league. And who do we all want to go reach? We want to go reach white, middle class people whose kids all play little league. It's who we're comfortable with who looks like us. There's, there's outliers, of course, but this is, this is the, the middle. And hey, that represents our community. And there's, there's, that's okay. We, we are largely representative of who our community is. But that's not how we're going to aim to build this church. Because we're not building our church. We're building his. This isn't about us, brothers and sisters. This isn't about what people think about how fancy our buildings are. This isn't about us being able to tell how big our offerings are. This isn't about us being able to, to count out the number of baptisms. It's not about that. It's about the glory of God in the kingdom of heaven. Hallelujah. Let me just tell you, the fact that the church is filled with people that looks just like them and aims to reach people that looks just like them is not an outreach strategy. It's an indictment that we look nothing like Jesus himself. Jesus reached his hand to the leper. Jesus reached his hand to the unclean. Let us do the same. Let us do the same. Let us be extensions to the outliers of our society. Let us be extensions to the lepers of our world. Let us be extensions of Jesus to those people that the world would be surprised that we spend our time with them. There is no such thing as a prime's prospect At Iron City Baptist Church, unless by prime prospect you mean someone that is capable of being delivered from their sin by the grace and gospel of Jesus Christ. Every brother, every sister, every man, every woman, every child of every nation, of every ethnicity is a prime prospect of this church. And we will live that way. We will live that way. And we will press on. So I'm asking you to look in the mirror this morning. Who is it that you're uncomfortable with? Who is it that you find it most often that you look down your nose upon them? Is it the person at work that has an awful mouth, that says horrific things? Is it the family member that you have that's just a bum, that just seems like they just won't take care of their family or they're on drugs and won't quit or or, or whatever that is? Is it the homosexual that you work with every single day and they gross you out and it makes you uncomfortable and all that kind of stuff? Is it the person that you sit in class with and they're a hostile atheist? Is it the staunch Democrat? Who is it that you find yourself looking down upon? Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, is God able? Is God able? Is the grace of God able to deliver that leper? If he reaches down his hand and he touches him, will the leper be made clean? Do you believe in the sovereign power of God? Do you believe in the sovereign power of God as the leper believed? It gets better. It gets better. Verse 5, we're introduced to another man. That Jesus should never have been talking with. We're introduced to a centurion. Now, a centurion is a Roman officer. He would be over a minimum of a hundred soldiers. They were the, the backbone, the spine of the uh, Roman military, the most powerful military at that time that had ever walked the earth. They could be up, they could be over as many as a thousand people. But a Jew did not talk with. A Gentile. A Jew would not associate, certainly not socially, and certainly not uh, spiritually, with someone of of a Gentile race. uh, Certainly someone that they would be seeing as oppressing them through the power of Rome. And so the centurion seems to know that. And the centurion actually, according to Luke, says sends out uh, Jewish elders to go and to approach a teacher like Jesus. Because a teacher like Jesus with, with influence would never be seen associating with a, a Roman Gentile centurion. And the man sends word and says, I've got a servant that's very valuable to me. In other words, I, I've got a man that's important to me. I've got a man that, that means something to me and I, and I need your help. Would you would you heal him? He's paralyzed. Would you would you heal him? And Jesus does something that's awesome. In, in verse, uh, in verse 7, your your translation probably reads like mine. It says, And he said to him, I will come and heal him. At virtually every commentator, every Greek scholar that I read this week all say the same thing. That this is asked in the phrase of a question, in the question. That Jesus is asking, not telling. He's not saying, I'm coming to your house, he's saying, Could I come to your house and heal him? Or would you like me to come to your house and heal him? What is Jesus asking him? He's not just asking him about healing this guy. To come into someone's home was to fellowship with them. Fellowship with them. He's saying, would would, would it be okay? Can, Can I come into your house, heal your servant, and fellowship with you? I'm offering you more than just healing. I'm offering you more than just delivering this guy. I want to come and fellowship with you. What does the centurion say? No, 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 Jesus. No, I I could never ask you to do that. I could never ask you, uh, a Jewish teacher, to come into my Gentile house. I could never ask such a thing. I am not worthy of you to come into my house. Now think about who's saying this. Think about who's saying this, and it's remarkable what's being said. This is a centurion looking at what a uh, probably homeless, used to be carpenter, gone preacher. And he's looking at this guy, who by the way is a subject race in the empire that he's helping oversee. And he's looking at him and he's saying, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. I'm not worthy for you to come into fellowship with me. I'm not worthy of all of that. Do you understand that a centurion's life, his entire life, is built on being worthy? His entire life is built on being worthy. You don't go to centurion college to become a centurion, all right? You don't go to Jack State and major in centurion to be a Roman officer. How did you become a centurion? By proving yourself worthy. A centurion was to be the most intelligent of the army. A centurion was to be a man that had displayed valor, had displayed loyalty, had displayed allegiance. A centurion was to be one that was the best of the best, the cream of the crop, that would be on the front lines charging with his troops, that would keep the morale high of the the battalion that he was overseeing. And yet he looks at Jesus. This man whose whole life, his whole career has been built on him being worthy. And he looks at Jesus and he says, I'm not worthy. He recognized something in Jesus. He recognized that Jesus was not like other men. He recognized that Jesus was not like the soldiers that he led. Jesus was not like the emperor that he served. Jesus was different. What he recognized about Jesus was his authority. He says You know, I I am a man under authority, and I'm a man in authority. I answer to the emperor. I go where he sends me. I come when he calls for me. I do what he tells me to do. He said, and and I have men around me that are the same way. When I speak to them, as a matter of fact, it's, it's as though the emperor is speaking through me to them. I'm speaking on behalf of the emperor with all of the authority of the empire and all of the power of Rome. And so when I tell a soldier to come, he comes. When I tell a soldier to go, he goes. When I tell a soldier to do something, he does it. And he says, essentially, I see this in you. I have human authority, but but you seem to have spiritual authority. You tell water to become wine, and it just does it. You tell lepers to be clean, and they are. You tell dead people to raise up and walk, and they raise up and walk. You tell paralyzed people to roll up their mats and go home, and they do it. I command soldiers, but you command water. I command men, but you command nature. It is an authority that he immediately recognizes, immediately sees. After all, what kind of man do you go to to ask to heal a paralyzed person? Just in asking Jesus to do it, he's acknowledging that Jesus has some power that is beyond him. You don't go and ask your your best friend at the country club to come and heal your paralyzed servant. No, you ask God to do that. You ask one with an authority that so far transcends yours that you can't even register. And what does it say that Jesus is? This is one of the most remarkable things that all of Scripture says about Jesus. It says that Jesus marvels. Your your translation might say that Jesus is astonished. Jesus is amazed at what he sees. The centurion comes and he says, I'm not worthy to have you in my house. I know that you can heal him from where you're standing. I know that you're capable. I know that you command water, and you command the lame, and you command sickness, and you command I know. I know something about who you are. And Jesus looks at him, or, 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 or gets word, and he is amazed. He is astonished. He is marveling at what he has heard. Now, what is it that leaves Jesus marveling? I think it's two things. I think, number one, it's the faith of the centurion, isn't it? That this man has come to him and has had such that you he will heal him that you can heal him and i'm trusting that you don't even have to touch him you don't even have to be in the house with him you don't have to be in the room but you can touch him from miles away but what's the other side of this thing is that this centurion this gentile has such faith and then israel doesn't right he's contrasting here he's saying israel you don't see this You don't see it. Those are his people, remember? Those are his people. They've got the book that says he's coming. They've been looking for him. They've got the prophecies. They've got the promises. They've got all of that stuff. And yet, they come. Jesus comes, and he's not what they expected him to be. He doesn't look the way they expected him to look. He doesn't do what they expected him to do, and they reject him. They don't recognize his authority. They don't recognize him as coming from God. They don't recognize him as the Messiah, but the Gentile does. He didn't have the Old Testament. He didn't have the prophecies. He didn't have the heritage. He had none of that. He couldn't go back to the Exodus and think about the Passover. He didn't have all of that. And yet this Gentile has punctured the identity of Jesus more than any other person that we've read up until this point in Matthew. This is the man that that gets beyond seeing a simple man and sees, in fact, someone sent from God. Jesus says something then that would have absolutely left the mouths of all the Jews present agape. He says something that Matthew, who, remember, is writing primarily to a Jewish, Jewish audience. He, he, he records something that Jesus says that is going to leave all of the, the Jews with their mouths just, just hanging wide open. He begins to talk about the Messianic Feast. I don't know how much you know about the Messianic Feast. All right, so, so all of the Jews believed that the Messiah was going to come back and he was going to restore ethnic Israel to her, her political power of her day. And all of the other nations were going to be jealous of her. And all of the other nations were going to long to be like her. And instead they were going to be way beneath Israel and all of the spoils from the battles, all of the spoils from the victory of the Messiah were going to be uh, put on display in this great messianic feast, and all of Israel was going to gather around the table and eat from the table of the Messiah the feast that he had won. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, guess what guys? There's going to be more than Jews there. There's going to be more than Jews there. You got it wrong. Abraham's going to be there, and Isaac's going to be there, and Jacob's going to be there. And I love the preposition with here. Because it's showing on equal in an equal seat at, an, at the same table at the same time with no greater or lesser position of glory. And it's saying, and with them is the centurion. With them is the Gentile. That you're going to have Abraham and you're going to have a leper. You're going to have Abraham and you're going to have a Gentile. You're going to have Abraham or or Isaac, and you're going to have the centurion that's sitting around the same table at the same time at the table of the Messiah will be them all. In fact, a lot of the Jews aren't going to be there at all. Where they're going, there's going to be wailing and gnashing of teeth. They will be condemned because they didn't have the faith of this Gentile. They didn't have the faith of this centurion. Do you understand there's going to be lepers in the kingdom of God? Do you understand? Brothers and sisters, we are lepers. We are lepers. We have been made clean by the gospel. We have been set free. We are Gentiles. But God has adopted us into his household, and we will sit at his table, and we will feast with the Messiah. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 25 so we can see this a little more clearly. See, this is one of the texts... That the Jews would go and look at to be anxious for the coming Messiah. Beginning in verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 6, it says this. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. The veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day. Behold this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. See the part that the Jews missed. Is right out of the gate in verse 6. What does it say? We'll make for all peoples. For all peoples. That means not just you, Jews. That means in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of God, at the table of God, at the messianic feast, there's going to be Africans and Americans. There's going to be the rich and there's going to be the poor. There's going to be the young and the old, the ancient and the modern. That all gathered at one table, at one time, around one meal, they will eat. And there's not going to be tears there. There's not going to be pain there. There's not going to be division there. There's not going to be a lack of hope there. There's not going to be fear of tomorrow there. No, on that day, there will be no fear, no pain, no weeping, no gnashing of teeth. Only feasting at the table of the Messiah. Only feasting. Can we just stop for just a second and recognize the fact that for all of us that are in Christ, we're going to be there? I mean, come on, man. Get excited about something, church. You're going to be there. You're going to be there. Try to sit still. You're going to be there. Can you even imagine? Can you even imagine? Close your eyes with me for a second. Close your eyes with me for a second. Imagine that the Lord Jesus has come. You have watched as resurrected men and resurrected women have come walking out of the grave. You've seen it. You're gathered around his table. Look around. What do you see? Look at all the colors there. Look at all the different colors of all the different faces there. Isn't it a spectacular mosaic? Listen for just a second. Listen to all of the languages there. Listen to all of the languages. Languages you've never even heard of. Languages you've never seen. Languages that you didn't even know existed. And they're there. You're there. He's there. English is being spoken. Spanish is being spoken. Mandarin is being spoken. Russian is being spoken. All of them doing the same thing with one voice. Coming together in all of their different languages. Proclaiming that Christ is king. Imagine as you take the food, and you reach for it, and at the same time you grab, and, th- and there's, a, there's a leper that was there, and he was set free, and he's, he's telling his story. Think about Rahab, the prostitute, and she's, she's telling her story. You're seated, and, and Moses is there, and Peter is there, and you're seated, seated right beside them as though you were somehow worthy of that. Brothers and sisters... Is the kingdom of heaven not beautiful? Is the kingdom of God not spectacular? You're going to be there. Let me just ask you something. Should our church not look like that? Should our church not look like that? If that's what the kingdom of God looks like, should our church not look like that? Should not be filled with all different colors and all different voices? Should not be filled with other languages? Should not be filled with the leper and the prostitute and the banker? Should it not be filled with every person from every walk of life? Brothers and sisters, the church is a mosaic. It is broken glass and living stones that come together that God uses to build up his kingdom. That God uses all of the diversity and all of the the history and all of the background and all of the the leprosy and all of the sin. And he uses it and he delivers it and he reveals the veil, as Isaiah says. And all of it is used for his glory, for his worship, to say, I am greater than all of this. You see, what we see in Isaiah is the foreshadowing of the Great Commission. Have you ever wondered why why we don't just do missions in Calhoun County? Have you ever wondered why we don't just sit here and try to reach the people closest to us, but why we go to like Lotch Creek and Salt Lake City and Mexico and Swaziland? The nations are gonna be there. This isn't just about building our empire right here in Calhoun County, this isn't just about expanding our footprint. This isn't just about expanding our campus. This is about building the mosaic. It's about building the kingdom of God from all nations and all people. And Jesus has told us, go and make disciples of whom? All nations. At the feast, all the nations will be there. And in your mind, if the kingdom of God is filled with only people that look just like you and think just like you and do just like you, you most likely so misunderstand the gospel you so profoundly misunderstand the gospel that you likely will never get to see it for yourself anyway. Because the gospel transcends all of these social barriers. Jesus came for the leper and Jesus came for the Gentile just as he came for the Jew. As we end briefly, back in Matthew chapter 8, I want you to see the final one that Jesus heals is the simplest. Jesus has just miraculously healed a leper. Jesus has just authoritatively set free a paralyzed man, a paralyzed servant of the centurion. And then we get to what is the simplest. And you can see that they're going in descending order, the way Matthew has arranged this. Verse 14, and when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. Another gospel says that he rebuked the fever. Let me tell you what's beautiful about that to me. What's beautiful about that is that it it is nothing like healing a leper, is it? It's a fever. It's nothing like telling a paralyzed man from miles away to get up and walk. It's nothing like that. No, it's smaller than that. And it's simpler than that. And yet Jesus does it just as urgently. Jesus does it just as faithfully. There is no request that you have that is too big nor too small to bring to Jesus. There is no sin that you have that is too big or too small that he can set you free from. There is no need that you have that is too great or too least for you to bring it to his cross. Remember, our Savior is the one that leaves the 99 to come after the one. Brothers and sisters, whatever it is that you have, bring it to him this morning. Whatever it is that you're struggling with, bring it to him this morning. Perhaps this morning you need salvation. You realize that that you are not a Christian. This morning your need is great. Come, be clean as the leper was. This morning perhaps you're you're like Peter's mother-in-law. Your need is not quite as great. And yet Jesus will hear you just the same. And Jesus in his sovereign power is just as able to answer and just as able to set you free according to his will. Bring it this morning. Because Jesus will never be annoyed with you, will always be patient with you. Jesus will never get be irritated at your request, instead he will always graciously receive it. This morning, wherever you are, I'm beckoning you, come, 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 pray that the Lord will send you to the ends of the earth. Pray that the Lord would use you to bring salvation to many. Pray that God would open up your mind to, to welcome people into his house. Pray. Let me pray for us. In Jesus' name, we come to you, Father. Knowing that there is no one that you are not able to save. Knowing that there is no social barrier that you are not willing to trample knowing that there is no human authority, that you do not transcend. Asking that, Lord, you move in us with your Spirit, that you transform us by your Spirit, that you bring us even now to have glimpses of the table, that our church might look like that. Oh, God, this morning, we want more of you here. We want more of you here. We want to look more like you. We want to be more like you. We want you to look down in us and find more glory and find more delight and find more pleasure. God, would you do that this morning? Would you move in the spirit? We ask these things in Jesus' name.